Hi, and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church Podcast. We want to thank you for joining us online and remind you to feel free to visit our website at seacoastvineyard.com anytime for up-to-date information on our local church here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you would like to give financially to this ministry, whether that's a one-time gift or a recurring monthly gift, simply click on the Give tab at our website and give however God leads you. Now, we want you to enjoy this message from God's Word. Good morning. Good to see everybody. Uh, good to be back. We took a couple weeks off, went to, uh, went to our conference out in Ohio, then took a week here when we got back just to hang out with our grandkids and be with them a little bit. But it is good to be back. My name's Tim. If this is your first time here at the Vineyard, I'm the senior pastor and I uh, want to say thanks to my pit crew, my preachers in training who took care of everything. Woo! They did a great job. <clears throat> Well, we're about to finish up. We've got one more week in this book called Philippians. A couple of times a year, I like to take a book of the Bible and let's work straight through it. That way, uh, we all can get exactly what the, uh, what the main point was of the entire book. And uh, so we've got one more week left. Now, this letter from Paul, the Apostle Paul, is a full court press appealing to a diverse Christian community. Uh, This Christian community is in the heat of some relational friction. Imagine that in a church. Uh, In this church, it's it's just so eclectic. You have Romans, Greeks, some Jews that have come to Christ. You have men and you have women. And you have women who are serving alongside this leader, Paul, which was very unheard of during this day. This is the you know, the first generation of the church. And here we have at least Yodia and Syntyche that's mentioned in this book. It says serving right alongside Paul. That had to be a little bit of a, you know, stretch for some people in the church early on. They weren't used to that. Uh, you also had teenagers. You had people, you know, we know we had, they had at least one from a really strange spiritual background. We know they had law enforcement in this church. They had a jailer in the church. So many backgrounds. All this going on and at the same time living in a culture that was not really what you would say accepting of this thing called the way or Christianity. It was somewhat of a hostile culture and then there was stress within this church, relational stress. Look at us, right? Look at us. The four services that we have, if you go through each of them, what you find is You find construction workers, lawyers, doctors, nurses, teachers. You find the retired. You find students, college students, singles, divorced, getting married, just married, want to get married, wish they weren't married. Uh, (laughs) You have so many, so many diverse people. I mean, you have Southerners and Northern for tension. You have the educated, the uneducated. You have those carrying a load of guilt. You have those who seem to be just as free as a bird. You have those who have been pressed down, beaten down, and left where they were on the ground. You have those just coming up in life, so optimistic and ready to go. You have people with strong opinions, and you have people who are afraid to express their opinions, but want to, but they can't. You have the white and the whiter. The brown and the browner, the black and the blacker. You have this beautiful, creative genius of God on display in what he calls his church. His church. 
all of the history that we have, all of our baggage that we have. If you could look over your head this morning, there's those conversational blocks, those breakouts. You know what I mean? Like in the cartoons where they had every Sunday and all. You know, you have that over your head right now. Now, I don't know it. Don't, don't get paranoid. Just like he sees it. I know he does. Now, it's like all of us come in. All of us come in with those conversations, that narrative of our life from history, hurts, and pains, and hopes. And all, we all bring it in to a building and into a ministry together. And man, what an opportunity for friction. <laughs> I thought the pit crew did a great job of explaining the ups and downs. And everybody looks smooth on the outside. But if you look real close, there's always edges in our lives. And when we come together in this thing called the church, we begin to rub against each other. And guess what? The heat is on. In this room, <laughs> the heat is on in every church, every group that gathers together uh, uh, that has any amount of diversity in it. And this book has mainly, this letter to the Philippian church is mainly about dealing with that heat. So it's a very, very, uh, I'd say, applicable word in a letter to any church and all churches. And so I hope you've caught that through these last 10 weeks and, and one more week to go of what Paul is trying to get us to see. We're going to be over in Philippians, the fourth chapter, verses 8 and 9 this morning. You have a fill-in in your handout. The scripture's in there as well. It'll be up on the screens. If you want to pull it up on your phone uh, or if you're taking the hot rod out for a ride, the book, you know, then take it out and, uh, and pull it up at Philippians 4, verses 8 through nine, and Paul this morning is going to help us. He's going to give us some very practical ways of dealing with that diversity and dealing with how, when we have friction with one another in the church, how are we to deal with it? And so we're going to need God's help here this morning. So we're going to read this, and then you guys are going to pray for me, and we're going to jump in. I'll pray too. Let's read this Philippians 4 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Father, we ask for your blessing upon your word this morning. Jesus, come and speak to your church. Speak to us. We open our hearts. We ask you whisper your truth to us. I believe you have hope, a great hope, wonderful expectation for good this morning for us. And we welcome you here, Holy Spirit. We welcome you. Come and rule and reign in this place. Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, this church is experiencing some persecution from without, and that would be very noticeable. But there's other threats in churches and in gatherings, and any church or group that uh, tries to get together and, and do something and make a difference. Um, and that is when we have relational 
We have relational problems. Just above in this chapter, we've read the names of two ladies, Yodia up in verse 2 and Syntyche. And Paul doesn't call them out. He doesn't say what the problem is. It's probably not that big of a deal, probably an attitude issue, because that's what gets us in trouble most of the time, our attitudes, right? And, but he's saying for them to, to get together and to agree and to have the same mind that Christ has. And we read about that over in chapter 2. And that the mind of Christ is humility. And the mind of Christ is preferring others over ourselves. That is the mind of Christ. And so Paul is appealing and saying, hey, come on. And then he follows it with this. Like, okay, I want, before I get ready to end this letter, I want, you, I want to give you this help. Yodia, Syntyche, these two women who have ministered with me, alongside me, I want to help you, and I want to help the church learn how to deal with the differences, how to get along. But you know what? That's the pit crew said. Church wouldn't be real if it wasn't messy. If it's not messy, it's not diverse enough. If we don't have something to work through, then we don't have anything. (laughs) I mean, that is the beauty of the church and the challenge of the church. And um, so Jesus brought us the example of humility. He brought us the example of preferring others. And, uh, you know, unity is very easy, again, as the pit crew said, when there is no diversity. Now, when we have a problem in the church, and I'm going to speak, I was writing this to a local church. So when we have problems in the church, we have a few choices. And we probably, most of us have made one or all of these choices Sometime We come into a church and we start getting rubbed the wrong way. Friction happens and so we leave. And we go, it's just not worth it. I don't need this grief. I don't need this friction. I don't need this. Church is a bunch of hypocrites. They tick me off. You know, I don't understand it. So I'm bailing out of church. I don't need church to follow Jesus. That's another sermon. But that we do that. Then there's, I'm going to leave. And I am going to bless another church with my presence. And so you leave and you go to another church only to find that there are actual human beings at that other church. It's almost, you go, I can't believe there are human beings here. It's like I was hoping for better. Or you leave and you start your own church thinking, now I can control everything that goes on in my church. Only to find out that you got to deal with yourself. Because it goes with you everywhere you go. Or you can do like Paul says. And I think this is it. You can suck it up and you can get down to the business of discovering what it is God wants to do in his church. Now I know there are real reasons. There are good reasons to leave churches. But most of the time we leave for not good reasons. So I'm speaking to those. I know if it's bad teaching. I know if it's... You know, it's harassing if it's cultic. I know all of that. You shouldn't stick around. But we're not talking about that because Paul is talking to two good church members right here. Ministers that sit right by him, minister with him. So that's what I'm talking to today in our midst. So Paul's going to give us some examples right up front. Verse 8. And in the fill-in, you've got this. uh, Your first fill-in is simply think. Think. I mean, he goes through this litany, and we're going to look at these words. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever. And then he gets down to, he says, think about such things. We think about a lot of things, don't we? Especially when we're having problems with someone. We think about how rude they are. We think about how they treat us. They don't treat us well. 
And suddenly it be, we build a narrative. We build this story, this novel around this person's personality. And we tend to lose the human being in the narrative as we keep saying and thinking things about this person that, that at one time was maybe a friend to us and serving right alongside us in the church. Now, Paul stops Yodia and Syntyche, and he stops the members of this church, and he says, whoa, I want you to remember this as I get ready to close this letter out. I want you to think, and I want you to think about these things. And he begins, the, he begins his list. The NLT says, fix your thoughts on these things. Fix your thoughts on these things. Um, I've read that 75 to 98% of our mental, physical, and behavioral illnesses come from our thought life. You know, how much, that, how we think. And if that's true, imagine the life of the church, how healthy the church is, is really dependent on how we think about one another and what we think about God, what we think about Jesus, what we think about ourselves. So you, what you think about is powerful, incredibly powerful for good and for bad and for evil and sadness. Uh, scientists call our unwillingness to be able to roll with the punches in life They call it, and I like this term, cognitive inflexibility. (laughs) Cognitive inflexibility. I cannot roll with the punches. I can't do it. It's got to be my way. I can't do it. I have cognitive inflexibility. And boy, that shows up, being a church veteran now, uh, that shows up in church, a lot of cognitive inflexibility. And like I said, a lot of times we want to cut and run when things get to the point that uh, we are not enjoying them anymore. Paul says, wait a minute. Wait just a minute. Think about this. Think about these things. Uh, He has, in the NIV, there's a term that's used, I think, seven, eight times here that I really like. I use the term, too, but I don't use it biblically. I use it with my wife when she says something I don't want to hear. And it's called, whatever. You know, I do. I mean, I say it, and I'm catching myself thinking I sound like a moron, a juvenile moron. And um, Paul takes that word "whatever," and he doesn't use it like that. He doesn't go "whatever." He goes "whatever is true, whatever is noble," and he goes through this list. Think on these things. So here's the list. Think on these things. We need to take our minds back and tell ourselves what to think and how to think about it. And he says, think on whatever is true. And that is, we dwell on the, not faults, not things that are untrue. When we're dealing with one another, most likely uh, our breakdowns occur because of some feeling that we've had, some issue that's, you know, that has come up between us. And then suddenly, as I said earlier, we build a narrative around it. We don't remember what was true originally. We forget that that person has helped us at some stage of our life. Or they've been there in the church. They've done this. They've done that. And Paul says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Before you think about all of that, think about what's true. Has this person ever done anything for you? Have they done anything for anybody? Don't create the narrative of this is like, you know... Most wicked person in the world, you're forgetting the true aspect of this person. Grab your thoughts, bring it back, 
and think on the things that are noble. And that is awe-inspiring. Awe-inspiring. A-W-E. I'm Southern, so it made it sound like (laughs) awe-inspiring. Awe-inspiring. Is there anything in your life that really inspires awe to you? You know how you can get down um, and get really kind of bummed out and you're... You just can't get your head kind of out of the gutter. You can't get your head out of that low spot. Is there anything that inspires beauty in your life? Is there anything in your life that causes you to smile? In all honesty, Paul is borrowing from some of the Greco-Roman philosophers and all with this list. And I think it's smart of Paul. He looks into his culture and he grabs it and goes, here, Remember when you heard this from the philosophers? Well, it's true in the church too. You need to think this way. And so he grabs this, he pulls it in, and he says, think of the things that are noble, the things that are awe-inspiring. When you're having a problem with someone or you're feeling some tension, can you find a place, can you find someone that causes you to smile and just creates this sense of grandeur to you? All I have to do is look at my granddaughter's eyes. (laughs) I mean, I could be having the worst time the all day long, and I can look at those little eyes, and all of a sudden, you, you know, everything just kind of fades to the background. We live at the ocean, people. Have you been there to sunrise? It does come up right over there. It does. Have you seen that? What inspires all? It's like, don't get stuck in this rut of thinking Sintaichi and and Yodia, don't get stuck in this rut of just thinking negative about people. Think of things that are noble, that are worth spending your time thinking about because chemicals will take us hostage. The chemicals in our heads, our minds, once we head down that road, suddenly we're just bummed out all the time. We're depressed. We're angry. And we don't know how we got there. Now, I don't think Paul knew about the chemistry at all, but I think it's beautiful that God used him to speak to him for us now because there is science behind all of this now. It says if we will take our thought life back, then our feelings can actually change. We can begin to you know, produce the chemicals that help us feel better in life. And so Paul says, think on the things that are awe-inspiring, things that are beauty. Do you have that are beautiful? Do you have anything like that? You should be writing them down like, gosh, you know, a song does it for me. That one song. If I can hear that one song. If I can be with that one person, they make me laugh every time I'm with them. Find something awe-inspiring. And he says, think on those things that are right. That is righteous, good, and just. Get your mind. What, is, what are some of the things that are just? You may not like this one. How can you serve that person? That's justice, right? How can you go and serve that person that is irritating you right now? What can you do nice for them? Because that would be right. That would be, that would be right for you to do that. Because that's what Jesus did for us. And while we were yet sinners, a long way off from God, he came and he died for us. And while my friend is irritating the crap out of me, I went <laughs> and did something nice for them. I got them a Starbucks card. I went over to their house and raked their leaves. I called them up and told them I loved them and I'm praying for them. I went and did. Do something just. Think on the things that are right, righteous. It changes the way we look at people. Then think on the things that are pure. And that is, get your mind on that which transpires all. 
which transpires all. Those things that are chaste and pure. I mentioned my granddaughter, my grandsons do this for me. The ocean does it. There's nothing to me more pure and beautiful than the ocean and a wave. And uh, just to see it, to see the sand and feel my toes hit the water. And uh, that washes away things for me. Maybe yours is something in nature too. Maybe it's birds. Maybe it's knitting. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> painting. Whatever. You know what it is though. You know what it is. It lifts your spirits. It drags you out of that place of being so judgmental. And Paul says, get your mind on the things that are pure. And then he says, on the things that are lovely. Lovely. That is, whatever is friendly towards. That is acceptable. The things that are acceptable. Wanting to kill that person is not acceptable. It is unacceptable. Get your mind on the things that are acceptable. Can you think about one thing that that person has done that is lovely? That you're having a problem with. I mean, you're, you're in a place with them right now where you're, maybe you're in some friction. And all you can think about is the issue that caused the friction. But there's more to it than that, right? Can you think of something lovely about them? Do they have a nice smile? Do they love their family? Do they work hard? Have they come to church with you and they're still serving? Are they still there? Think of something lovely about them. And think on the things that are admirable. Admirable. Reputable, that is. A good report. Again, have you heard anything good about this person? It's funny. We say that. There used to be a saying like, I haven't heard one good thing about them. I used to be, you ever said that or heard that said? It's like, really? Not one good thing about them? Well, here's a good thing. For God so loved Charlie. I don't know if Charlie, if you're here, it's not you. But, um, you know, Charlie, that he came, resides the um, Imago Dei, the image of God. Can you find something beautiful, lovely in that person? Admirable. Something that is to be respected. That that, is an, that person is an actual creation, not a mistake but is a handmade creation by God. Made by Him, His own breath, His own image and printed. Maybe it's covered up right now, but it's in there. Deep within. Can you look at them and see that? Admirable. Then He says, think on the things that are excellent. Excellent. Courage and fortitude instead of dwelling on the brokenness. It's really good sometimes to say it doesn't have to stay like this. I mean, that's an excellent thought. It doesn't have to remain like this. I don't have to always feel this way about them. I don't have to. What is excellent? What takes courage? What is fortitude? Um, Karen, Friday was our anniversary. Um, 44 years. And... Um, yeah, longer for her. Um, <laughs> seems like yesterday to me. And, um, but um, we were talking, and, and I got permission to share this. And I said, 44 years, 46 years of knowing each other, dating each other in high school, and 
you know, and being all these years together. And you go through things. You have to deal with things. Uh, anybody that thinks there is a perfect marriage has not been married. <laughs> and, uh, but marriages can become so beautiful and so much fun, but you have to work at it. You really do. And one of the things that we've discovered is when we're having our struggles with each other and, and you suddenly thoughts get in your mind and you have to battle with them, that if you will take them back and begin to recall the good things, like recall, gosh, this is the most loyal, faithful person in my life. I mean, 46 years, never, ever abandoned me, ever, once, been there for me. Good, bad, the ugly in my behavior, how I've been. She has loved me and been there. You start putting your mind on those things. You start thinking, okay, that person was a friend of mine for five years before this happened. But we forget the five years. We forget the good, don't we? Because it's the moment that is robbing us of that past wonderful, beautiful history. And Paul says, grab that history. Remind yourself there's more to this than what is happening right now. That changes your thinking. That changes the chemicals. Suddenly you begin to become grateful for that person again. And you know what happens? Chemicals get released in your body. It's a beautiful thing in a marriage. And you start smiling. You start thinking of the good things. You go, woo! You know, and, and it, it doesn't mean you don't deal with your issues. We're talking about normal relational friction here. That's what this is about. And Paul's given us some good help here. Don't forget the history, the good history you have. And uh, then he says, think on the things that are praiseworthy. That is commendable about the person. That's what I'm talking about with like Karen and I or friends I've had. I've been estranged from friends. I've been through some brutal times with one or two friends. And it's easy to, to, you know, to, to feel like, okay, that's it. And it, maybe it is. Maybe the other person will never work through it with you or whatever. But you don't have to be like that. You can think of the things that were praiseworthy about that relationship before it went bad. You can go, no, it's not all bad. Or we wouldn't have fallen, you know, wouldn't have disintegrated. There was some part of it at some time that was praiseworthy. And so you grab those thoughts and you bring them back and you go, I remember that. Yeah. I remember that. And that makes it easier not only to let go of whatever you're going through and the pain, but if God gives you the opportunity to reach toward the person again. Whatever's praiseworthy. I think the church has an issue that uh, doctors call when you have a distorted body image. It's called uh, body dysmorphic disorder. I think the church has body dysmorphic order. When we look at each other, like some, some of us, when we look in the mirror, we don't see what everybody else sees. We don't. We just don't see it. And you can have 100 people tell you you're beautiful. You can have 100 people tell you they love being around you. But when you look in the mirror, that is not what you see. I think the church is like that. The church looks at the mirror. They look at each other's mirrors. And we go, man, this ain't right. <laughs> you know. And we have this disorder in the church when it is indeed beautiful. The church is beautiful. And the more diverse it gets, the more beautiful it is. And so we have a disorder thinking everybody has to look like us, who has to be like us. And that's just, that's a disorder. We do the same thing in church. Science and scripture, this comes from uh, Dr. Carolyn Leaf. Science and scripture both show that we are wired for love and optimism. 
And so when we react by thinking negatively and making negative choices, the quality of our thinking suffers, which means the quality of our brain architecture suffers. It's comforting and challenging to know that negative thinking is not the norm. It's not the norm. It's not the norm. So what do we do? Paul says this in verse 9. He says, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into what? Practice. When you walk out of here in just a few minutes, I hope, I really hope you'll put this into practice. It will, it will honestly work. The church to be healthier. To be healthier. Practice what you've learned, Paul says. What you've received, what you've heard, and what you've seen. In him, he tells Yodi and Syntyche and the rest of the members of this Philippian church. You've seen what I've been through. You've heard how I'm talking to you. I'm in jail now, but I'm talking to you. And while he's, while he's in jail, he's shackled to the Praetorian Guard, this special ops guys, forces, special forces guys, and everyone that gets unshackled and put back in his chains. We hear, you know, we, we believe that he began to share Christ with everyone. He took advantage of wherever he was. So he's preaching from a place that we have to listen to. He's preaching from jail itself right now. And he's saying, here's how to think, because this is the way I'm thinking. I'm here. This is where God has me. And this is how I'm thinking. So practice what you're seeing in me. Practice what the, what the Bible says. Man, Romans 12, too, says that, says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that's what Paul, he wrote that, and he's mentioning it again right here. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good and pleasing and perfect will. But you can't do it if you don't do this, if you don't renew your mind. You won't know what is God's good, perfect will for your life. If you don't do this, you won't. Rob Mall, in his book, What Your Body Knows About God, says that five to 16 minutes of intense, deep thinking or prayer activity increases the chances of a happier outlook on life. Imagine if you spent that five to 16 minutes thinking about that person in the ways that Paul just described to us. If you started thinking about the things that were, you know, reputable, the things that were good about that person, how that would change your kind of lift you up out of that depressive point in your relationship. We have so many backgrounds and opinions in church, and I hope it only gets worse. I pray we just have to deal with this even to a greater degree because that means we're becoming more diverse and newer people are coming in. And God has given us the tools to deal with this. Here's an interesting, I thought, uh, funny actual fact. Brain researchers say that the size of our brain is perfectly predicted by the size of our social group. Living within a large group of people is an intellectually demanding task. So if you want a big brain, you need to be in a bigger social group. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm going home, I'm going to be with my, my two, and your brain goes back down. You get with a larger social group, and then your brain begins to expand. Matter of fact, this study said that the, the optimum number is about 150. Well, I found that I want a bigger auditorium so we can have one or two services. But you know what? When I read that, I thought, in this room, a good 
comfortable amount of people is about 150. I said, oh, thank you, Lord. Now I know why we're here. You know, we can get big brains by being together. If we can get at least 150 to 180 in this building and serving together all the time, then our brains are going to expand. And I could use it. And so, I mean, we're social creatures. We were meant to be social creatures. The church is a social group. It's not something mental. It's something we do. We live together. And if we do this, Paul says that we will experience. We will experience God, God's peace, and that it will be with us. God's peace will be with us. If you put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This peace, the word used for peace, is the absence or the end of strife. Sounds good, huh? That's how Paul PS this whole section of scripture, because it started with strife. Started with some friction in the church, some heat. And he says, if you deal with it this way, then the God of peace, the God who expels strife, will come and be with you in the church and with you individually. Paul loved this church. He loves this church. We know that. He wants them to get back to doing life together the way that they have done it, what he had experienced with them. He didn't want to see them get sidetracked. And you know, it's true how where our thinking goes, so goes our attitude, how we think about things, how we think about one another. Whether we think of the things that are true, whether we think about the things that are noble, whether we think about the things that are worth worshiping, that are honorable, whether we meditate on the things that are right and that are lovely, or the things that are admirable, or we stay where we are and think of others in a disparaging way, or even think about life or ourselves that way. We never change. But Paul says, Philippian church, you can have the God of peace living within you once again. Whatever, no, whatever is good, whatever is pure, whatever is admirable, think on these things. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast from Seacoast Vineyard Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We look forward to you joining us next time on iTunes or at our website, www.seacoastvineyard.com.